I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we are coming to you from the Kodo at the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for September 19th, 2008, and this is part two of our discussion of suffering. So today we want to uh, continue our discussion of suffering, or dukkha, uh, that we began last time. And I'd kind of like to revisit the terminology a little bit. Uh, there's a scholar named Herbert Gunther, Gunther uh, who was a uh, German scholar of uh, Buddhism. And he, I, I found it, his books are very hard to read. Um, they're very difficult to read because just something about his writing um, is very uh, abstruse. Mm-hmm. It's deep. There's good stuff in there, but a lot of times it gets very twisty and it can be kind of hard to, to um, it's not something you can just read um, on a shallow level. You've got to be ready to engage uh, the text. Uh, but I did find something really nice uh, in his writings uh, talking about the first noble truth of suffering. And he says, uh, the fact that in the whole of reality, there is nothing to which it is worthwhile to become addicted because everything is impermanent, unable to yield lasting happiness, and has no character of its own. So I thought that was really interesting, this idea that, uh, well, here's another one. Everything conditioned is unable to yield lasting happiness, and hence is misery, and that there's nothing worthwhile to be addicted to. And people say Buddhism is pessimistic. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that, that I... Rather than saying that it's suffering, uh-huh. right, which makes it sound, oh, it sounds terrible, but that, that in life that, that there's nothing worth f- attaching to, chasing right, after, right. right, that that isn't what brings happiness. And that goes back to what we talked about last time, that uh, uh, our wishes are unfulfilled. Even if we can fulfill our wish that we think that will bring us happiness, actually it doesn't. That's right, not what brings right. happiness. And even if you did attain something that you really wanted, it's not permanent anyway. Right, 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 right. We think that things are permanent, and if I can grab that, then I'll have everlasting happiness, right. and that gets old and obsolete or right. or whatever. Right. Yeah, Built-in obsolescence is always a problem. <laughs> uh, so I think that touches on some of the um, stuff that we talked about uh, last time about uh, these different... I, I, I think to think that uh, suffering is, is um, just one thing is kind of... Uh, uh, misleading too that suffering mm-hmm. has these many different levels right. it has that dissatisfaction of uh, not getting what you want or or thinking that um, getting that will bring happiness and then you get it and you realize eh, that didn't really do it right i guess right. i need something else and continually chasing after things thinking that that's what brings about happiness so that kind of dissatisfaction but also the suffering of sickness like this physical suffering right there's like obvious forms of suffering like sickness or not having things that you want um, but subtle forms of dissatisfaction as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is, I think, one of the problems of, you know, like we said last time, I, I happen to like the, the trans. I'm, I used to have an aversion to the idea of translating dukkha as, as suffering, but I've grown much more attached to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, I'm not quite sure why. Um, 
but that there are situations where it's like, well, yeah, it's really more about life being in some way unsatisfying on these subtle levels too, of just having an aversion to a certain feeling or, you know, simple, subtle things like just being too hot <laughs> or too cold. <laughs> what do you think? What's up with that? But actually when you're sleeping right lately, it's gotten kind of warmer at night. Mm-hmm. And so I don't sleep as well. Right. And it, that causes suffering in a lot of ways. It's, it's suffering when you're hot, but it's also suffering the next day when you couldn't sleep mm-hmm. and you're tired, right? So, yeah, yeah. See, it's everywhere. All I had to do is take off a blanket. <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> another thing I wanted to bring up, and this we can take this in a lot of different directions, is that I think the main place that we think of when you think of suffering in Buddhism is Four Noble Truths. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the classic formula. It's the, the most basic of basic Buddhism. Uh, but it's not the only place that suffering appears. And there's another classic list that actually isn't as well known, uh, which is the three Dharma marks. Dharma with a small d. Dharma with a small d. Uh, <laughs> that's one of the problems with this formula is that it has this word Dharma, which we usually associate with the teachings or with the truth. Uh, but in this case, it's a different use of the term. In Sanskrit, there's no upper lowercase letters, which right, is kind right. of the problem of using big D and small d. Right. But it works in English, right? And so it's more of a kind of a, a, a common use term, meaning just things. Right. Or the constituent elements of all fundamental existence. Right. Almost like atoms. Right. right. right? It's the atoms that, that the, the Abhidharmas um, uh, uh, analyzed reality down to their smallest constituent parts. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those dharmas are often uh, form is a dharma. Uh, consciousness is a dharma. But anger is a dharma. Right. Like they're, it's weird. It's not organized in a way that we might um, expect to see. Right. It's not materialistic in the sense of, of atoms in Western scientific physics. Right? right. Right. It's more the fundamental nature of reality and a more. Uh, well, physical, but all well, psychophysical, I would say, right? Because it's ah, also about um, psychic states, mm-hmm. psychic in the sense of psychology or, mm-hmm. or mental attributes, not just the physical world, but our feelings and our perceptions of the world, also are part of these dharmas. Yeah, and yeah. all of these are, are are organized. So it's organized not in a scientific way, but it's or uh, Western scientific, modern kind of way, but organized in a different very different kind of way, but still very logical, right? Because they break down form and like the five skandhas, for example, right? That's organized in a very, very logical way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think all the Abhidharma lists are also organized in this breaking down everything, not just the physical world, but our mental states and our relationships and our feelings and all these other things too. Yeah. Right, right. And so this list is referring to those dharmas. I think usually the conditioned dharmas, the, mm-hmm. the, the dharmas that are created and come into being and then go out, fall out of being. Uh, and it's about the, the three marks that all dharmas have. All things, all the elements of reality are marked with these three. Number one is impermanence. So all things are impermanent. Uh, number two is no self. So all things are fundamentally marked with no self. They don't have any, any uh, self-existence of their own. And then number three is all things are marked with suffering. Right. Which is interesting, huh? Yeah. So that's a different take, I think, on uh, the, the, the Four Noble Truths. It's kind of approaching it from a different direction. Uh, yeah, I mean, because those three things are in the 
in the Four Noble Truths as well, from in a, a different way, point of view. Right, right, right. Yeah. In a, yeah. in, but in a, in a oblique kind of way, not right. explicitly stated. Right. right. Yeah. So that's what I like about the three Dharma marks is that it, um, uh, it has stuff like impermanence isn't in the Four Noble Truths explicitly. You can read it in there. Yeah. But yeah. the the text itself doesn't say anything about impermanence. Right. Uh, it doesn't say anything about ignorance either, which isn't in this. But, you know, there's there's stuff that we can read into the Four Noble Truths, and it makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. but it's not in that original sermon. Uh, there's actually a fourth Dharma mark, which, of course, they always got to do that, right? They'll do the three <laughs> Dharma marks, and there's actually four. And that is that all things are fundamentally marked with quiet and quiescence, or uh, that they're still, which is nirvana, right? So I think part of what this is it's pointing... coming from the Abhidharma? I don't know where this comes from. It comes from early Buddhism. Okay. It's in Pali texts. Okay. Uh, yeah, this goes way back. Uh, it's found in Tibetan Buddhism. There's a story in Tibetan Buddhism sure. about the one of Shakyamuni's previous lives, I think, and he goes to this cave with a monster, and he hears this poem for like that gives him the first two, and he wants to hear the other two. Like, um, it's it appears all over the place. It's in the Irohano Uta, the um, that poem of um, Japan that uses all the hiragana once. Um, that's used for the writing system, but it's also a Buddhist poem expressing this. Hmm. So it appears all over the Buddhist tradition, but we don't sure. hear about it that much. Uh, but I think one thing it's pointing to also that we haven't really talked about is that you can kind of uh, associate suffering, quote-unquote, with samsara. Right, right. Right, and that there's kind of an equation there. And so by saying that, you know, samsara is made, is all those dharmas make up samsara. Yeah, yeah. And yet all those dharmas are impermanent. And yet all those dharmas are no self. And yet all those dharmas are samsara. They're well, suffering. Right. But then if you add that fourth one, which may be more of a Mahayana idea. I was, that's that, why I was asking about the, whether it's yeah, the fourth one or not. But I yeah. think that, I mean, well. I'm not sure. That's a good point. Where that fourth one comes in is that a later interpolation can you find four in the Pali texts? Right. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I think yeah. that... Um, it, it know, feeds right into the whole into that, other huh? issue is this debate about you know the difference between Mahayana and non-Mahayana and when that happened and blah 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 blah. Right, blah. Right, right. <laughs> we can debate that till the cows come home, um, but I think that it's it's. I would not be surprised if if that was part of the original Pali text that all dharmas are also, are also marked by nirvana. Mm-hmm. You know, Mahayana had to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so interesting, huh? Yeah, all things yeah. are are marked with suffering. So samsara, our unenlightened lives here in the six realms of rebirth, are fundamentally marked by impermanence and no self and suffering. Right. And yet, and yet they're also marked with nirvana. And so a Buddha sees that, right? And that a Buddha dwells in nirvana, and yet also sees samsara, yeah. understands it. Is not does not become suddenly ignorant and unconcerned with samsara. Right. It's like no. It's like it, that. I think I, the ideal of enlightened awareness does not then become deaf and dumb to samsaric right. existence. And, and if you think about it, that it has to be true. And the reason why I say that <laughs> is because the, you know, the, one of the things that I think that we tend to do with the nirvana is create it as this sort of other world state, right? Mm-hmm. This other state of being, right? That nirvana is this fundamentally different place from nirvana and people who have achieved nirvana are not affected by this world and yet the buddha himself suffered the results of his karma when he died 
right? That it's very, it says very clearly that he got the food poisoning as a result of karma that was generated, you know, eons ago, right? right? So even though the historical Buddha himself is, has attained the state of enlightenment, he's still affected by some random occurrence here in samsara, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that it has to be true that in some way that we don't really understand, samsara and nirvana have to have some kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And but you know what? I don't think it necessarily has to be true. Yes, I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> but that's that is the tension that happens yeah. a lot in Buddhism. Yeah. Is how can there be a relationship between Nirvana and Samsara? Is there a relationship? Are they completely other? Mm. Or how can purity of Nirvana be have anything to do with the taint the, of of Samsara? Right. And I think that that Mahayana goes and runs with that in one way, right? right but then right. Pure Land and you know a lot of the Buddhist philosophy, that's the issue. So in a way, I think you're right that, yeah, they have to have some relationship, and yet that relationship isn't it's not transparent. Yeah, yeah, no. There's, no. There's, that's, and it's a struggle, yeah. and people resist that because they want what well, it seems to me that the, you know a lot of Buddhists want there to be something other than this suffering-filled world that we live in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you said last time, it sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there must be some other place, and how can Nirvana possibly be this? And yet, you know, if, and that's the, uh, that's part of the other tension, right? If, if Nirvana is totally separate from Samsara, then we would not be able to attain Nirvana. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. There would, we couldn't, how do you make that jump right. from something that's absolute other? Yeah. Which yeah. is, I think, one of the fundamental tensions and conflicts and in, in questions that Buddhism raises, right, is that there is this existence that's marked by impermanence, by no self, by suffering, and yet somehow we're able to transcend that. Mm-hmm. Ah, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. And we could go on and on with examples. Yeah. Vimalakirti Sutra, right, right. right when, when uh, is it Subhuti or one of the disciples um, says to Shakyamuni, why is your pure land so defiled? Right. Right, and then, then he touches the ground and then boom, Subhuti sees, oh my gosh, it was a pure <laughs> land all the time. I just didn't realize it kind right, of thing. Right, right. Um, Which I've always found very interesting and and. I like that imagery and it also find, I find it very deeply frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I like that imagery in the sense that it's this, that, you know, part of this conflict we're talking about is, is easily solved by a change of perception. You know, the seemingly ease of saying, Oh, well, we're already in the pure land. All you have to do is realize it, which seems like this, you know, ridiculously easy thing. And yet it's not that easy. You know, it's clearly not that easy that, that this life that we're living in has a lot of these frustrations. How do you get to that point where you can just, you know, touch the ground with your toe and everything changes, you know, mm-hmm. radically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so that's beginning getting questions of path. Yeah. I think, yeah, right. Of, yeah. of, uh, so what? Right. Life is suffering. There's a way out. So what? What do I do? Right. right. Now what? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so now what? Well, that's an interesting because th- you see the in Chinese, um, definitely Japanese, and I think it comes from Chinese. The the um, four noble truths are given these single characters to summarize them. So the first is ku, suffering. The next one is like I forget the exact one, but it's reason, right? And the next one is um, you know there is a way out, and then the fourth one is path, just do or michi, right? Dao. Right, and so that, and the 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 Pali formulation is the eightfold path. So the way to get out, there is a way out, 
I've told you the truth and I've told you why it's like that and I've told you that it can be overturned. Right. How? Follow the Eightfold Path. Here's how you do it. Yeah. Hmm? yeah. Here's how you do it. Yeah. 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 The interesting thing is that actually if you follow the Eightfold Path, it's a non-Mahayana, pre-Mahayana formulation. Mm-hmm. And actually following that is not good if you're a bodhisattva. Following that will lead to the death of the bodhisattva. You'll become an arhat. You'll attain your own personal awakening. And then if you get to the point of a once-returner or a non-returner, you're in trouble because you can't do the bodhisattva path anymore. The whole bodhisattva path is being reborn again and again and again um, until your vows are fulfilled or whatever. Right. So it's interesting that a lot of times we teach basic, in, in BCA anyway, we teach basic Buddhism, yeah. and yet that's not really acceptable in Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism actually overturns the, the Four Noble Truths, and it reinterprets them, and actually says, you know, don't do that. Do six paramitas. Right. Right? So it's kind of, it's, it's interesting, huh, how the, 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 we have to be careful about um, some of the quote-unquote basic Buddhism. Right. Uh, well, y- y- yeah, yeah. But I, I think that it's, it's sometimes helpful to think about this from a, um, a different point of view, right? And we can talk about the three turnings of the, the wheel of Dharma, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is the first one is, is all of this stuff is the Eightfold Noble Path and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one is the Mahayana teachings. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is the Vajrayana teachings, right? It's, it's one, one way of okay. looking at that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is polemical stuff, Wait. I realize. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm wrong. Um, but I think that's an it. But to look at the Buddhist teachings or the, the history and development of Buddhism from this point of view of that the tradition itself and the teachings themselves are developing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, now that's one way of looking at the history of the tradition from like a historian's point of view, but to use that as a metaphor for how you can approach Buddhist practice, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think would be an interesting um, pedagogical tool, right? Because you can say, well, you start with this basic stuff. You can start with this stuff of, of life is suffering and, here's the solution and here's the path. But then you take that up a notch when you get to this next level where you can use that basic stuff as a foundation upon which to build more complex ideas, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That are, are more subtle and harder to understand. But once you have that basic foundation, you have a context for sort of unpacking these ideas, mm-hmm. right? And then you can move on to another level and get higher and higher and higher. There's one way to look at these teachings or as right, a path right, right? right. yeah it's interesting because in um if you look at shinran's writing he never talks about four noble truths mm-hmm. eightfold path uh it never comes up and i think the way jodo shinshu is taught in japan too it never comes up that's not important those teachings have been superseded right right shinran's pure land true pure land way is it yeah it's perfectly formed and so they teach it at a very high level from that vow shinjin right. that kind of thing right um but I think we can see that there's problems with that pedagogy, pedagogy, with, <laughs> um, in Japan, that it's it's not working yeah. for young people, uh, young because and you can see that because for like we were saying earlier, vulnerable truth seems like it's perfect for our times of this idea of suffering yeah. because of you know wanting things and it doesn't um, answer our needs, and so I think that we need to go, we need to incorporate that. Yeah. 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 And I think that you know. 
for for me, this is my own personal take on 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 Shinshu and what and whatnot and Buddhism in general. Really, is that it's an experiential sort of thing, right? That you have to have this experience of it in some personal way. You know, just being told a bunch of stuff might not really do it. <laughs> be quite frank. I mean, you know, my experience, like I was saying before when I first heard about the full noble truths, I was an angry young man and someone said life is suffering. And I said, hell yeah, it is. <laughs> That's obvious to me. But I was also attracted to the fact that, you know, the fourth noble truth is here's this path. Here's eight things you can do to end suffering. It's like, okay, great. You know, and then I have this experience of that and I can sort of use that as, you know, a starting point. Right. And I think that throwing, you know what I you know I think Shinran has some really amazing profound stuff to say but it's hard to get if you don't have any background if you have right, no context right, right. he's he's speaking from being submerged immersed yeah. in this Mahayana culture yeah right? yeah that uh so you can take many, a lot for yeah. granted you know you yeah. can read into Shinran a lot because you know he knew about it he might not have ever written about the four noble truths but he knew about them <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> he must have mm-hmm. you know you can't well not necessarily though i wonder that see that's a question that i wonder and this is totally kind of off the top of my head but i wonder if they even really talked about that stuff and i don't think we can take for granted that they did on mount hie for example um they go into things well they do but they talk about it in a weird way if you've ever looked at some of the um tiantai uh-huh. the um the person right that um it's like when they talk about path it's like it's not talking about the eightfold path it's talking about it's, it's a weird he's using this term but he's using it to mean something like this balance between samsara and nirvana and all this sure you're kind of like whoa what's he talking about so right but they also have polemical works mm-hmm. within these schools right of talking about the reason why our school is better than hinayana Right, 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 right. Oh, I see what you're saying. But who, but did a, did a like regular level monk really hear that stuff? Did he read that stuff? I don't know. That's what, that's where I sometimes I don't want to assume too much about what people knew. Yeah. Um, If, you know, look, I don't know what they taught. I don't want to assume that they had know as much about Buddhism as we did. That's being kind of putting an arrogant way that we don't so much, but we have access to so many schools and traditions. And, you know, we've heard about Tibetan book of the dead and uh, Theravada. I see see what you're saying. And I I can agree with you to a point, but at the same time, I think that there's like, I think there's a sort of, sort of certain assumed Buddhist culture, Mm -hmm. right. That you would know about. Yeah, I don't know. I well, personally, I'm, I'm. I mean, I mean, not that you wouldn't necessarily know about it in the sense that you've read certain texts or that you, you know, were told certain things or had certain teachings, but that you would be sort of tangentially aware of them. Um, and and the reason why I say this is because, um, you know, I'm going to use my wife as an example, <laughs> who's she's not a religious person, um, and yet she knows about Noah's flood. Mm-hmm. And she knows about, you know, Christ coming back after three days. Mm-hmm. I mean, she knows about these sort of very basic, you know, cultural reference because she grew up in a Christian culture. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not so much that she, you know, she's never read the Bible, but right. she understands, she knows that there's two Testaments. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. 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 she has this sort of understanding of this general sense of this religion and what it's all about. You know, it, it mm-hmm. might not be right or it might not be in depth, but because she grew up in this culture, she has that context. So I think that we can assume 
that Shinran had some sort of Buddhist context. Even oh, if absolutely. He, even if he never, they never spot, spoke explicitly about some of the things that we're t- talking about or aware of. I think those things were part of the sort of larger monastic culture. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. <laughs> All right. I, 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 it, but that's just something that's kind of because and the, here's another example modern example I don't think very many Japanese followers of Jodo Shinshu know about the Four Noble Truths when I was in school on a graduate level of course but um, so I didn't take the undergraduate courses and you know in the undergraduate courses sure they probably had a week on you know the, the Eightfold Path Four Noble Truths or whatever but the average level person I have a feeling doesn't know about it I think a lot of times it's not talked about Okay. And I don't know for Shinran what was basic for him. Did he ever know emptiness? I mean, and so what is that shared Buddhist culture? I don't think we know. And I want to be really careful about it. And I always wonder about it because, you know, Pure Land texts don't talk about emptiness very much at all. Emptiness pops up in mm-hmm. the, the um, larger sutra like once. I like went looking for it when I was in IBS. And it's like when you when you hear the sound of the trees or the wind tinkling through the trees, it brings to mind the thought of emptiness. That's it. Never talks about it otherwise. Um, it may appear in like Ronchu or something in these various texts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what was that shared Buddhist culture? I don't know. And a lot of times I think we accept Four Noble Truths as basic Buddhism. But I'm not convinced it was basic Buddhism for Mahayana across the board. Because... It's radically reinterpreted, right. and um, it's the um, Buddhahood. I mean, but you know, the interpretation implies that we know about it, and yet I don't know how much it was really talked about. I don't. I mean, I, I would love to know what the monks, what kind of education they got. Did they sit down and learn? Okay, first we're starting you with the Four Noble Truths, then we're going on an Eightfold Path, then we'll give you six Panamitas, or what was it? You know, was it more memorizing texts? Uh-huh. Just here, chant the Lotus Sutra. Okay, you got that one down. Okay, chant the. Um, Sakavati Vyuha Sutra or whatever, you know, I don't know what kind of education they got. I don't know what that culture was. Um, I think impermanence, right? Where does that come in? How do people know about it? Um, Yeah. No self. Did they even think about that? Shinra never talks about that. So what of this is basic and what isn't? I think, I I, I guess I just don't want to take the, I'm going on way too long about this, but (laughs) I don't want to take for granted that it is basic. Okay. I want it to be basic now. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, because I yeah. think it's important. I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. I I, yeah. I would like to give them more credit. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to assume too much. <laughs> Somewhere in between here, though. So yeah, probably yeah, well, the right. middle way between <laughs> in our in our uh, discussion slash argument. <laughs> it's probably the truth. Yeah. Somewhere between these two microphones. Is <laughs> in order to kind of uh, wrap things up. Right. Uh, it might be a. Uh, um, I found this kind of interesting point in an article by uh, Ryusei Takeda from Ryukoku University, and he was my advisor uh, when I was studying there. And he has an article about uh, the Pure Land Buddhist view of dukkha, or suffering. And he says something interesting, uh, that we talked about the raging skandhas last time, and that they in themselves aren't suffering. And they're not necessarily even the cause of our suffering. That... Suffering is because of our conception Mm. and because of our attachment to things or aversion to things or ignorance of things. Uh, And right there we have the three poisons. Right. 
uh, which we have a whole spiel on, which we might talk about some other time. The next uh, podcast. Yeah. Uh, but but this idea that, right, it's because of how we react to the skandhas. It's because of how we react to the world around us mm-hmm. that causes suffering. And so I see something, I want it. And even getting it is dissatisfying, whether I can even get it. Right. Or I see something and I don't want it. Right. I don't want to be near it. And that causes me dissatisfaction. Or I want something and I get it. And yet ignorant of the fact that it's impermanent, I am caused suffering because it, right. it doesn't last forever. Right. So that our it's our perception that causes our suffering. Right. And this is this I the reason why I think this is relevant to our our conversation we were having a moment ago about what Shinran may or may not have known. Our heated conversation. <laughs> was that um those kinds of conversations are where I think are almost really the trap, right? Like that's where suffering is is really most likely to happen. Well, not most likely, but mm-hmm. certainly one of those places where we have this conversation and we both get very attached yes. to our particular points of view. And we mm-hmm. really want to defend that point of view mm-hmm. and, and, you know, are unable to cede the point or even let go of whether or not our views are right. Um, even let go of the idea that we can possibly know. There's no way that either one of us can possibly know <laughs> what Shinran may or may not have been exposed to mm-hmm. 750 years ago. Um, and yet we think that our own opinion is right, right. and we're attached to our opinions. Right. And, yeah. and that's where the suffering arises, Yeah, yeah. right in that, in that space. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm letting go of that. Oh, good. I'm not feeling any suffering. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bottle it up inside for uh, a while. <laughs> and let it out at an appropriate yeah. time. Yeah. I'll let it out at the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's true. The middle way, I mean, to break it down, I think the, the middle way uh, is what I like about it is that it's open-ended. Hmm. And that in any situation, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't have opinions. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't think about things. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be critical. But... Attaching that opinion too hard or just not having any opinion at all are extremes. Right, right. Right. And it's that middle way between those extremes that each of us has to find for ourselves uh, in each situation or, or for each topic or whatever uh, that um, maybe we can find a little bit of relaxation of our, of our dissatisfaction and dis-ease. <laughs> Absolutely. This will conclude part two of our discussion of suffering. Thank mm-hmm. you.